Welcome to Season 2 of Nuances Beyond First Impressions with the Asian Diaspora. Together, we wanted to create a safe space where everyone can learn more about our diverse communities, the complicated relationships we have with our culture, and how they intersect with feminism, queerness, disability, anti-racism, career choices, politics, and more. I'm Ariadne Nila, a Filipino-American from a small town on the southern border of Texas. And I'm Sherilyn Lee, a.k.a. Lazu, a new American originally from the only place a dodo bird ever lived, Mauritius. Before we get into our conversation with Offering Rain, here are some definitions. We've mentioned some of these before, but since it's been a while, it's a good reminder. Desi refers to someone who comes from or whose family comes from India, Pakistan, or Bangladesh, but who lives in another country. Masking refers to hiding your authentic self in an effort to gain greater social acceptance. Code switching is changing the way you speak, the way you carry yourself in different situations to try to fit in. So basically masking in certain contexts and unmasking in different contexts. LGBTQIA plus stands for lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans, queer or questioning, intersex, asexual, and the plus stands for any others also under the umbrella of queerness. Queerness is also another word that is used to refer to the LGBTQIA plus experience. If you'd like to learn more, we have a few interviews on our website with members of that community. So just go to nuancespod.com and use the category filter to find interviews with members of the LGBTQIA plus community. Now on to our conversation with Offering Rain. Our guest today is Offering Rain a New York City born and based multimedia artist and organizer working in the realms of audio, poetry, painting, and design. They utilize their artistic practice in hopes of refreshing the earth like rain through multicultural sound and poetic lyricism. Their previous work has been exhibited at Art on the Avenue NYC, Soho House, Knockdown Center, and Bronx Academy of Arts and Dance. As a DJ, they have worked in collaboration with HBO Max, Mutual.Love, Kajal Magazine, and their music has been featured on Euphoria, Generation, and Walker. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Tell us about growing up in New York City as an API person. The first thing that comes to mind really is my parents and how they met. I'll just start with that. My dad used to work at a newsstand in Brooklyn and my mother frequented that newsstand. That's how they met. My father is from Gujarat, India, and my mother is from Guayaquil, Ecuador, and they met in Brooklyn. So I feel like that's my beginning is when they met. It's so cool. Yeah, and I feel like that also paints a picture of the melting pot that I grew up in and having access to these really almost polar cultures, but having to do the work of bridging those two and doing that in a place like New York has been quite wonderful. Not to say that it was easy. It's come with a lot of challenges as well. There's so many stories like that here. And there's so many stories of fusion and remix. And that is totally up my alley and what I'm excited about. That's awesome. And that's also a very cute story of how your parents met. Yeah, that's adorable. I love hearing meet cutes like that. I feel like they don't happen often. Did you face any racism or did you feel othered in any way as an AAPI person growing up in New York? 
I did. I encountered your average racism in school. Like with being Indian as a kid, there wasn't that much positive representation of Indian folks in media. There was all these stereotypes flying around in school. And I just remember feeling like, dang, I think I have to hide who I am for a little bit because it's just not safe. And I remember moments in middle school where people would say things about Indian folks and it just shamed me. Luckily, I ended up finding a community of people that made it so easy to be myself later on in life. So I do more in those moments in childhood where I was bullied for something that really had nothing to do with me. It was just a projection of whatever Hollywood is painting about Indian folks and media. But I've definitely had to grapple with some of that and I'm happy to be on the other side. Now, being Indian and also being Ecuadorian is such a source of pride and joy for me. I've had to do a lot of reclaiming and that's taken a lot of emotional labor, but it's been so rewarding. Yeah, I feel like we see that so much with diaspora kids. We spend a really long time masking and code switching to fit in. And then we get to a point where we try to reclaim the parts of ourselves that we shut down while we were kids. And it is. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of emotional labor, but it's definitely worth it. Totally. And I finding later in life, all these things that I loved doing as a kid, even outside, like I used to make little videos, I would record myself on a camcorder. And I used to do that again around this time in middle school. I feel like middle school was really like, this is where all the shame is going to happen. And it just builds up from there up until high school. I think college starts to shift, but we still deal with institutional things and stuff. But yeah, now I found myself doing all these things that I loved doing as a kid. And I'm like, oh, this is just me accessing my inner child that I had such a direct access to as a younger person. But all these environments molded me to do, you know, wander on my own path. Yeah. Sure. That's awesome. I do want to ask, and if you're not comfortable talking about this, that's totally okay. But when you mentioned some of the racism that you had to navigate growing up, did you find that it got worse after 9-11 or did you find anything different after 9-11? My father's from India and he raised me as a single parent. So when we would travel, that's when it became clear that he looked a certain way. When I think about the interactions that I've had and I compare them to the interactions that someone in my father's generation has had, it's very different. The difference is so stark and I feel so protective of my father. I'm sure there's the racism that I have not yet unpacked that I've experienced, but it doesn't compare to some of the things that I've heard about my dad's experience. With regard to 9-11, I know that's affected so many people. And I don't know that it's directly affected me, but I know that it's affected people I love and care about. And I'm sure it's affected me in some way, but I haven't registered that. Yeah. You mentioned you were also Ecuadorian. Do you want to talk a little bit about your experience being mixed race? Maybe some things that are different in your experience being mixed race? Yeah, I feel like I'm talking a lot about this younger version of me. And it's like my younger self is getting an opportunity to talk. I'm thinking about moments where I'd be hanging out with my mom's family or my dad's family. There was always kind of like, am I fully seen here? Do both sides, do my mother's family and father's family, are they going to integrate? Are they going to connect through me or in some way? And I think as a younger person, I had a lot of struggles with that because I felt so much cultural tension, but also I could detect some familial tension. And I don't know that that was directly like cultural thing, but it did make it difficult to feel like, am I 
Indian when I'm with my mother's side of the family or am I Ecuadorian when I'm with my dad's side of the family? And that was always this gap that I'm filling now. But as a kid, I didn't really have that adult figure telling me like, you are both, you are all of this and that's okay. And there's nothing wrong with now I'm telling myself that a little bit more and I'm exploring that so much in my music and my art practice. And I think even part of my life's work is to continue building those bridges and make that more accessible to everyone. Because I think it's really beneficial to everyone when we hear these kind of certain nuanced... Ah. Ah. <laughs> yeah, nuanced stories and experiences. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's awesome. So was it like whenever you were with one side that they claimed you as fully part of their culture and they didn't acknowledge the other side as much? Is that? Yeah, it was more like not acknowledging, not acknowledging and not having an interest in that other, in the kind of integral part of me. So it just felt like it wasn't meshing outside of me. Like obviously it meshed within my body. Yeah. <laughs> but it wasn't meshing externally And the moments that I did find that it was meshing was through art, through music and food. So that's where I found peace in having that multicultural background. Yeah, I mean, I've told this story a couple of times, but there's a song by Daddy Yankee called Mirame. And it samples a Bollywood song called Eli de Eli. And I remember being a very young person when that song came out. I remember I was at my cousin's house on my mother's side. They're Ecuadorian and Puerto Rican. And the song came on, I think on the radio. And I was like, what is this Bollywood song doing on the radio right now? <laughs> Because it, it was almost like my interest in Bollywood was my secret. I couldn't really share it because I was being shamed at school. And my dad knew about it. So I, I could share with him, but that's my home space. And that's who I could be in my home space. But finally, it was being recognized in popular culture and also the culture that my mom's side of the family is partaking in also. And so that was like a huge affirming moment for me hearing that song. And that has been a big catalyst. That is so cool. Yeah. yeah. Do you find similarities between the two cultures? Like maybe are you seeing more things that those two cultures have in common than you did before? Yeah, even within the last few months, I'm discovering more, more similarities. They're really subtle, but I'll try to explain it this way. The food is not similar at all because Indian food is really spicy and it's very flavorful. Ecuadorian food is also very flavorful, but they don't use spice. As far as my family goes, they're not super into spice. So I didn't see overlap there. Where I am starting to see overlap which required me to do a lot of investigating and research on my own. It's not necessarily being passed down through storytelling on my mother's side, but I am learning about holistic medicine. And I think maybe this is a universal thing in all cultures. There is some sort of wisdom around medicine and plants. And I'm just starting to pick up on those things. And that really feels like the ultimate bridge between the two cultures is, okay, what's the relationship to land? They're very different geographically. India is very tropical. Where my family lives is actually more on the coast. Whereas where my father's family is from, they're like inland. Picking up on those things and trying to make those connections is a lot of guesswork and imagining the potential for the parallels. But that's where I would say I'm getting some of that stuff. I just started reading a book called The Science of Self-Healing which is a book on Ayurveda. And it's reminding me of some shamanistic practices that are used in South America. And it hit me as like, oh, wait, my dad's dad was an Ayurvedic doctor. So I'm just like, I feel like I'm rambling, but I, I am, I'm still working on it. I'm still working. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. a work in progress for everyone, I think. Trying to unpack our cultural heritage. Growing up, 
most of us didn't really think about it. And I don't know if it's a product of the times or if it was just when you're young, you don't think about those things. And now we're getting older. But yeah, I think everyone that we've had on here has had a journey where they've gone through phases of being completely oblivious of culture or not being able to articulate what was going on. And then now finally getting to the point where we're asking those questions and trying to figure out where we come from and what we are. I know. What would so everybody asks us that? What are you? It's like, <laughs> I don't know. Beats me. So how represented do you feel by the term AAPI? Because it encompasses such a broad group of people. Do you feel like that fits you? Do you feel like there's a term that you identify with better? This is a good question. I don't feel fully seen in it. And that's always been a challenge. Usually I don't fully feel seen in things that are not emphasizing multicultural some things. I, I also have had internal dialogues about the word mixed and like multicultural and like what I prefer. And out of a feeling and an instinct, I've always just felt more drawn to multicultural. When there's an AAPI event, I am drawn to it. And I know that there is space for me there. But then I also sometimes can be wary of spaces that solely... And this is not necessarily with the AAPI community because that's already a huge umbrella. And then there's the term South Asian that's commonly used or Desi. The more narrow it goes, the less and less I feel seen. So I do, I do, it's not like I don't identify with AAPI. It's just there's still parts of me that are like, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Yeah, it's up in the air. Yeah. Is your hesitation because of your multicultural background or is it because of the fact that Indian or South Asian feels like it's being separated from the rest of AAPI? Because I've heard that too, where a lot of people who are from India or whose families were from India or Pakistan feel like the term AAPI is more associated with people who look like me. So I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. I mean, it could be a little bit of that. I can't recall like the first time that I had heard the acronym AAPI, but I do remember being like, I don't know if I'm a part of this group. And I had to look it up and do a little bit of research. And I remember someone reached out to me and was like, hey, we're doing this thing for AAPI. And I was like, oh, I don't know if I am that. And they were like, you are? <laughs> so I was like, okay, I just learned something. It could be a little bit of that, but I think I have probably more to explore around it because it's causing me to think a little bit. So how has it been navigating conversations about being LGBTQIA plus with your family, with the API community? So with my family, it's been like everyone else's a unique experience. I came out at a very young age to my dad or let him in, let him in. So he's always known, but he's also had to grapple with acceptance in his own way. He's an artist. He's a painter. He's been in the artist community. There are a lot of queer people in the arts. So I don't think it was totally a shock or hard to grasp, but I think he was, un I was very young. So he was, are you sure? Are you certain in disbelief about it? But that was obviously proven very true as years went by. <laughs> Yeah. And then I think growing up in a single parent household at that time, it was as long as my dad knows, I don't really care about anyone yeah. else. As long as my dad in some shape or form accepts me, I'm good. Then I did a little bit more growing and wanted to include other people in my family and to like show them who I love and stuff like that. So then it became, okay, now I'll start slowly letting more people in. And I mean, not all of them were super great experiences, but none of them were super negative either. It's been a challenge for 
my mom a little bit. I don't think she'll listen to this, but she's struggling with accepting it. But also I didn't tell her directly, like someone else had told her, which I was like, that didn't feel so great that she found out from someone else. But she called me when she found out and she was like, I heard that you are this way. Is that true? And I was just like shocked on the phone. I was like, yeah. And then she was like, it's okay. It's your dad's fault. I still love you. <laughs> so I was like, I guess this is the best possible outcome. <laughs> Tell me she loved me. So like, I'm just going to ignore the other part of it. <laughs> yeah. Not so bad. I I feel grateful that I am where I am right now. And growing up in New York, obviously, has made it much easier for me to just have access to people that are queer, that are very open. And so... It, it didn't seem that challenging growing up. I also grew up in a neighborhood that is very queer. So I had community and people to lean on in some way. That's awesome. Yeah. Awesome. We had one of our guests from season one, Tony, who said something similar. I think they said bringing people in, which <laughs> something to that effect when they talked about their queerness and rather than coming out, it was bringing people in. And so when you said that, it made me think of that. And I really like that idea, too, of letting people into your life rather than rather than asking for their acceptance. You're bringing them in. Yeah. And it, it feels very true. The process that I went through with my family was letting people in. Obviously, with my mother, that was not a consensual, like someone had told her for me. And that was a thing of its own. But with everyone else, I've been letting people in for sure. Yeah. Awesome. We've had some guests that talk about their experiences not quite feeling represented within the LGBTQIA plus community. So I wanted to know if that has been your experience as well. For a lot of my young life, things are changing very rapidly right now with the kind of queer representation we have on film and TV. But growing up, yeah, I definitely didn't see myself in the queer characters that I saw. Now, I don't know if you guys have been watching the new generation of The L Word, but there is a character on the show. I know she's Persian. I don't exactly remember where her mother's side is from, but she's this Latine Persian person and she's queer. And it was very close. Like, I mean, it was good enough for me. This is someone with a really contrasting mix. And it made me, it did make me feel seen. She's my favorite character on the show. What? Just for that reason alone, too. I, I mean, it was just exciting to see someone who has that experience. But that's the only time I've seen a character like that. And that came out, I think, this year or last year. So... Excited for more. And yeah, I'm excited for more of that to come our way. Yeah. So tell us a bit more about how you got into the arts. And you don't just have one area, you do many different things. So tell us about how that happened. Yeah. So I mentioned earlier, my dad is a painter. He migrated to the U.S. in 83-84 and stayed in a building called Westbeth through the one-year program, I think through his school. I might be wrong, but he basically he found this building. It's affordable housing for artists in Manhattan. And once he had his one-year stay, he was like, I definitely would love to live here, want to come back. So he put himself on the waiting list and he waited 12, 13 years to get in. And so when they reached out to him about there being an opening, I was probably two or three years old. And so he, we moved there and I grew up in this building, this artist community. So I grew up with my dad who was doing his best to maintain his practice while being a single parent. And then also there's a gallery space and some cultural events happening in the neighborhood and Chelsea and where the Chelsea galleries and things like that. So 
my dad would take me to the openings or he would paint or use me as a reference in his painting. So visual art was always the backdrop, especially in my dad's household. And so naturally, I just veered toward visual arts. Like I went to a middle school for visual arts. I went to a high school for visual arts. And then I went to college to study fine arts. And I was just on that path. But I think a lot of it was, I don't really know what else to do. So I'm just going to lean on this. And my dad had always encouraged me. And he thought that I had a skill that I could harness and move forward in. So I was doing that. But I think in elementary school, I learned about GarageBand and how they're on these MacBooks and stuff. And then in high school, I got my first MacBook which had GarageBand on it and it was game over. Oh my God. Putting loops together, learning how to arrange, learning how to record myself with the Apple headphones or whatever. I was just trying things out and it was like I was obsessed and I just kept doing it. So eventually, much, much later on, I got logic and started figuring out what can I do. I never had academic training in music or anything like that. So I was just figuring out what I could do in college. I was already like, I want to do music. I love painting, but I'm over it right now. I don't regret going to school for fine art. It's totally shaped everything that I do now. And it's really been such a great experience doing that. But in that moment, I was like, I really want to learn how to do this in a way that I'm making music that I enjoy and that I want to share. So after graduating, I went full into it. And just experimented and learned. I'm sure many people can relate to this. I feel like I've just constantly learning. I thought it was okay back then, but then really, I only got really good this year, last year or something. I've just been obsessed with making music and I even started sampling myself more recently. So I'm still like doing a lot of learning. I put together a nine song project that's going to come out this year and it's the first big thing for me. That's been exciting. And I've, I also, as a kid, when I was, oh, I really do like music, I would just constantly be writing poetry and I still write poetry. Growing up in an artist household and in a community of artists, I want to express myself and whatever is in front of me, I will use that to express myself. And I feel that we are actually all capable of doing that. It's just having that willingness to open up to the different media that's around us to express ourselves. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. I, that's awesome. Congratulations on your upcoming album. Thank you. That's yeah. awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. And that's so great to hear that your dad was really encouraging and was an artist himself. It's always really cool to hear AAPI parents were really supportive of going into the arts. Yeah. And that sounds like such a fun community to grow up in. Yeah. It was huge blessing. Huge blessing. Yeah. So tell us about getting your music onto HBO and Euphoria. That sounds fun. Yeah. So I did a collaboration with Love Taps. So I sang on some production that they did and they have a manager who is in the sync world and they've been pitching this one song that we've done together. It sounds very different than the stuff that I make on my own. Some of it is maybe dance leaning. It might be close to EDM type stuff and it's very fun and upbeat. It just seems like people were digging it and it just sort of fell into place without me having to do much except sing on it. That's awesome. And yeah, I mean, that's really cool. It's a, it's a great placement. It's exciting. Yeah, that's huge. How has it been navigating the creative industry as an AAPI person? Do you run into things that you felt made it more difficult? Yeah, so I feel like I have been collaborating with different collaborators for some time. Since I really started to take music seriously, I was open to collaboration. But there was always this desire to incorporate Indian sounds or just certain sounds 
into that music that I learned later on that was sort of my duty to bring that flavor there in my own way. So maybe I was being dependent on other folks to help me express something that I wanted to express. That was the one thing. And then similarly, thinking about representation, there are really great Indian artists, obviously in India, but diaspora artists that have kind of gone undetected in much of the Western world. Digging that stuff up has been so exciting. And that's where I found solace and strength to keep making music is finding those diaspora artists that have been doing this in the 90s and stuff. These are people who are paving the way for the music that I wish to make and that other people are making right now. Yeah, so that, that's been really exciting. I think the music industry, there's a lot that could be improved upon. There's a lot of dynamics that are not so cute. And I'm here to totally destroy all that. Love it. That's what we're all here for. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess speaking of that, what are some things that you want to improve about the music industry? What are some changes you would like to see happen? Looking at the younger version of myself that was feeling really dependent on other producers to help me make the music that I wanted to make. There's some statistics that come with those producers, like who they were, what they looked like. So I think I've run into this. I've heard this with some friends too, that sometimes there's this dynamic, especially where there's a female-bodied singer. Sometimes they end up collaborating with a male-bodied producer and there are dynamics there that are not always equitable, whether it's a power dynamic or a splits thing. I've seen that and I just, I think it's really backwards. So what I hope for in the music industry and in all kind of creative industries really is more skill sharing and empowering young people to have the tools to create their own music, to learn how to produce. It is so easy to produce now. To learn how to produce is very easy. Is it accessible? It's not always really accessible. You need a computer. And there's a lot to talk about there about who has access to computers and stuff. What I hope for is really just getting down to the root of it and making this stuff accessible. For people who don't have access to music making tools, they're not going to know that's their passion until someone shows them that they're able to do it. I do believe that. Like If that desire is there, it will happen. But I just think it could be easier for children to have access to this. Having access to the arts, funding projects that help kids do that. I think I keep talking about kids because that's such an impactful time. For me, that was a really impactful impactful time. And I think a lot of children would cherish that learning. Absolutely. I think a lot of us too think of what do we wish we had as kids? What role models we wish we had as kids? And yeah, definitely the accessibility too. It's a lot of things that we take for granted, like having a computer and not everybody has access to that. So definitely making those skill sets more accessible, I think is huge. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. What advice would you have for young people hoping to have a similar career trajectory to yours? I don't know. There's so much to say. But my first thought was write it down. Write all the ideas down. Get started now with whatever you have. Let me try to think of it as if I was speaking to a younger version of myself. Just believe in yourself. That's the most important thing. It doesn't matter if other people don't believe in you. People will eventually catch on to the fire you have within you. They'll see it. And it's our job as artists to fan our own flames, bring that fire out, give it life and feed it, offer it some fruits or whatever we want to offer it. Just build that fire and keep feeding it. That's what I 
That's what I can think of right now. Awesome. Awesome. So we're going to end the interview with our rapid fire questions. These are a few questions that are one word or one phrase answers. You don't have to explain, but you can if you want to. You ready? Yeah. First question is, what is an Asian food that you should like but don't? Kichiri. What is it? It's like a rice and lentil combo. This is a very common thing for children not to like, but it's actually really good for you. It will help you clear your gut and stuff. It's not bad. It's just not my favorite. All right. <laughs> What's an Asian food that you'll never get tired of? Pani puri. Do you know what those are? No. It's like a puff, which is called a puri. And you put a stuffing so it can be potatoes, onion, just really kind of like nice savory things. And then you put this pani, which means water. But it's a specific type of water that has all these masa like masala stuff in it that makes it like savory. So you pour the water in the puff and then you eat it and it's crunchy and it's just perfect. Ooh. I love it. It, it sounds delicious. Yeah. yeah, it's really good. We're going to have to try that. You have to. <laughs> I highly suggest it. What languages do you speak? Not enough. I, I, I can understand some Hindi and some Gujarati and probably more Spanish. I consumed a lot of Bollywood. Like as a kid, I consumed a lot of Bollywood. So I can say like "biar," which means love. It's a very common word in the Bollywood movies. What language do you speak with your dad? English. I try to trick him sometimes to speak with me in Gujarati so that I pick up some things that he gets tired. I feel like that's the frustrating thing with families. They speak, they're like, oh, I'm just going to speak in English. But wait, I want to practice. Don't want to explain what it is twice. <laughs> yeah. I found that sometimes too, once you're used to speaking to somebody in one language, it feels really awkward to change. Yes. Like when I speak English to my parents, it feels very awkward. I've tried speaking in Tagalog with my Filipino American friends and I'm like, wait, no, this feels wrong. Yeah, it feels weird, isn't it? Your brain is just used to, okay, this language, this person. And then when you're switching, it's wait, I have to think about it more. Oh. All right, final question. Since you have an album coming out, What is a song on the album that's probably going to be a deep cut, but that you have a special relationship with? There's a song called 222MA, like capital MA. It's just like a really fun, wholesome song. I like wanted to make a dance, fun, vibey song that is spreading like a nice message. And I think it does that. And it's just fun. I don't know. It's just one of my favorites on the album. And I'm excited for people to listen to that one. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for spending the time with us today. It was great having you. Thank yeah, you so had much. So much fun. Thank you so much. Here are our takeaways for today's episode. Number one, Hollywood's caricatures of Indian people created negative stereotypes that caused many Desi kids to be bullied and shamed for their ethnicity. Number two, surrounding ourselves with a supportive community is key to reclaiming our whole identities and finding happiness. Number three, mixed-race kids need the adults in their lives to claim them fully, but also to celebrate their mixed identity by showing interest in the other culture or ethnicity. Number four, events celebrating our ethnicities could also do the same to be more inclusive and welcoming to mixed-race members. Number five, music and art are vehicles of connection. They're often the first experience of representation for people who have felt different their whole life. That's why they're so important. Number six, the arts would be more diverse if more people had access and exposure at a young age. Increasing access to creative tools and spaces is key to increasing diversity and inclusion in creative fields. 
Number seven, although they received little media attention, there are many diaspora artists that have been paving the way for decades. We'll include a link to playlists in our show notes on the website, nuancespod.com. Unfortunately, on the podcast platforms, we don't have enough space to include all the links there, so please go to our website for more detailed information and links. And finally, number eight, as artists, it is our job to feed the fire in us, to fan our own flames until people are drawn to its light. Before we end this episode with a song from Offering Rain, I just wanted to thank you all for listening. You may have noticed that since season two, I've been doing all the definitions and takeaways. That's because Ari has stepped down before season two began because she has some other high priority projects that are taking up all of her time. So it has been a one woman show behind the scenes. But don't worry, all of our episodes for this season were recorded last year. So Ari is on all of them and she will likely come back as a guest co-host for future episodes in season three and beyond. However, for season three, I am still trying to figure out what that will look like. So I would love to hear from you listeners. What would you like to see in season three? Do you like the definitions? Did you learn anything from them? Should I keep them? Should I throw them out? Do you like the takeaways? Do you like the rapid fire questions? I would love any thoughts you have. So feel free to send me a DM on the Nuances Podcast Instagram or TikTok or an email to nuancespodcast at gmail.com. Ari and I have also talked about potentially doing a Zoom event at the end of the season to celebrate two seasons of the Nuances podcast. So if that's something that you would love to attend, please reach out to us and let us know you're interested. That's it for today. We hope you'll tune in next week for another Nuance conversation. I'm leaving you now with 222MA by Offering Rain.
behind all of that venom Tell them, 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 tell them,